You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. All right, folks, this is the show. Welcome to the Story Centric Podcast with me, your host, Andrew Buckley. Why did I start this thing? Oh, man, why did I ever start a podcast? Because let me tell you, it's a ridiculous amount of work. Who in their right mind does this? But you know what? It's rewarding because I get to talk to some pretty amazing people. I started Story Centric because I love story. And you're probably thinking, who is this guy? Who's Andrew Buckley? What's this guy all about? Well, let me tell you. I am a published author of rather silly fiction for young adults and adults. Uh, I was first published back in 2012, got about six books on the market. I've been part of different anthologies. Um, I'm traditionally published and self-published. I have a literary agent who I adore. I've been on both sides of this industry. I've worked for a publisher and I am, of course, an author. I spend most of my time talking about writing rather than actually writing. I know it's a terrible habit to get into, but it's true. Uh, I travel to writing conferences and comic cons and schools and colleges all over North America and talk about the craft of story. So that's why I want to start this podcast, partially selfishly, because I wanted to talk to other creatives, other storytellers. So for this first episode, I want to go off with a bang. So I'm absolutely honored that on our first episode, we have Christopher Moore, international best-selling author of some amazingly wonderful fiction. Uh, he's written Lamb, A Dirty Job, You Suck. His latest, Razzmatazz, came out last year. It's an amazingly fun read. Uh, Chris has been in the business for quite some time. We sound like a couple of grumpy old men in parts of this conversation, but man, was it ever a fun conversation to have. He brings some wonderful insights into the industry. We talk about AI, we talk about the state of publishing and how it's changed. We talk about how to structure story and how to inject humor into story. It's all there, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Over the next few weeks, we have Amari Newton, who's going to be joining us. He's a voice actor for Marvel Studios, currently voices the voice of Black Panther on many of the animated properties. Uh, we got David Mish, Hollywood comedy writer. He's written for SNL. He's worked with the Muppets. He wrote for Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy. After that, we got Miranda Krogstad, spoken word poet out of Calgary. We got some great guests lined up, guys, so I hope you'll stick around. Before we get to the Christopher Moore episode, we've got to make sure that this podcast pays for itself, so here's a quick word from our sponsor. Do you love comfort reads that make you laugh, cry, and close the book with a smile? The Stevenson Family series by L.E. Wagensfeld has been called The Perfect Romances Full of Warm and Fuzzy Feelings. The perfect beach reads, the perfect books after you've had a tough day, the ultimate comfort books, and more. With the third installment, Breaking Past, being released on August 22nd, 2023, there's still time to catch up on the series and find out why readers are falling in love. L.E. Wagensfeld's books are available digitally on Kobo, Nook, and Apple, and in digital or print on Amazon. I'm not a romance fan, guys, but I have read Wagensfeld's work, and it is amazing. So if you're looking for a great summer read, or a fall read, or a winter read, or even a spring read, this series of books is absolutely perfect. I highly recommend you pick one up. Alright, you've waited long enough, let's get to the show. Introducing international best-selling author, Mr. Christopher Moore. Let's cue the music. Okay, let's start at the beginning. I mean, it's been a while since you and I talked. Uh, I think I interviewed mm -hmm. you for an old podcast I had, and that was like back in, 
I want to say like seven or eight years ago. It was a while. Um, but yours was always the most popular, one of the most popular interviews that was on that particular uh, podcast. Oh, good. People loved what you had to say. Um, so, but let's start at the beginning and then we'll get into the story stuff. So you were born in Ohio um, to mm -hmm. a cop and a uh, saleswoman. She sold large appliances, I believe. You're a mom. Um, mm -hmm. And you and I share uh, an interesting title in that we're both only children. So do you get the common thing when you tell people that you're an only child and like, oh, that explains that kind of thing? Because <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh... I, I, yeah, I get it a little bit. I get it a little bit, mostly from uh, the women in my life who are like, why, you know, I, why I have an inability to clean up after myself and sort and that sort of thing, you know, like, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, not too much out, out in the world. Uh, you know, I, do you get, you get that a lot, you say? I still get that a lot. Yeah. When I, it just, when it comes in conversation, cause it's always those general things when you meet people, you know, what was your upbringing and you know, you know, do you have brothers and sisters? I'm like, no, I'm an only child. Like, Oh, like that's like some big, know, like, oh, oh. relevant. They feel, they feel bad for you. They feel right. bad for you. And it's I, like, you know, it's like, it's like, it, it was awesome. Yes, it was. <laughs> I love being an only child. I had a very friendly yeah, dog exactly. and that, that was it. Like I didn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And there's also no like basis of comparison. It's not like I had like, you know. Exactly. It's like somebody going, what do you mean? You, you've been deaf since birth and you're like, yeah, I don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, you know? I, don't, I don't know what sound like, is. Yeah, it's, yeah, it'd be weird. Uh, so anyway, only child. Um, I credit that a lot to my imagination and why I became a writer because I, I was a weird kid with imaginary friends and shit. So that all, you know, factored into me. Yeah, yeah, for creative. sure. Totally. I read a ton when I was a kid, a ton. And, and like, you know, I'm sure like you, I imaginative stories that you just lived in, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you know, little worlds that you lived in. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that had a lot to do with not having to be conciliatory to brothers and sisters. No. Yeah. I, I think that was a big part of it for, for me personally. Um, and you started writing, I mean, again, much like I did, like pretty young, right? I think I read somewhere. 12 yeah, I, I was, uh, yeah, 12, 11 or 12. Um, I mean, I don't know if I thought about doing it for a living for a while, but I think it was around uh, 12 years old. I, I remember reading some Ray Bradbury books and I had always read, you know, on my own as a kid. But I think that was the first time I went, oh, there's somebody behind this who's manipulating me, you know, because in that short story form, you can see, oh, wait a minute, I'm being jerked off here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and I think that was the first time that I realized that there was a craft to storytelling, you know, more than just sort of linearly putting it on, on the page, you know. Um, Man. I mean, that must have been a real eye-opener as far as the identifying uh, a craftsman behind, you know, the writing. But, like, how did that influence you as far as, you know, from 12 years old, you start, you know, putting down whatever's spewing out of your brain. Like, how does that transpire into you actually being, wanting to do it for a living, I suppose? I think I had some good teachers in that they made me aware that it was something that I could do for a living just by, by an offsite comment just an offside, you know, just saying, you know, you might be able to do this, you know, and that starting probably at that age and then, you know, hitting maybe much harder at about 15 um, when I was writing narrative poems and stuff and I was uh, taking a public speaking course. And so you had to read the stuff that you wrote and you wrote, I wrote stuff with a 
stronger narrative voice. And I don't think I would have known what narrative voice was at the time, but I knew I was reading it, writing it to be read out loud. So I was conscious of the language and so forth. And my couple of teachers I had at that period went, you know, you're, you've got chops on this. You need, you need to think about that. So I think I just had those little, and I mean, uh, the, the contrast to that is I think my senior year in high school, I walked into a creative writing class um, and I had taken a advanced comp class from the same woman the year before. And, you know, in front of 30 students, she said, there's certain qualities that professional writers have to have. And some people don't have those. One of them being Christopher Moore. And, and, and the footnote is I am the only professional writer that came out of any of those students over her 30 year career. But, uh, so she didn't have an eye for it, but uh, but but on the but on the other hand, that same teacher, to her credit, made us write for publication. In order to to pass the course, you had to get either a rejection slip or a check. Of course, nobody got a check, but you had to submit a story to a magazine and get a rejection slip from them. Um, and so we were thinking about. She got me thinking about publication and writing for publication rather than writing to entertain my fellow students or uh, be the best in the class and so forth. And, and now when I talk to students, I say that's, you know, you, you're, you're not here to be the best in your class. You are here to step into the street with me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and my 18 books, you know, that's, that's the realm that you have to compete in. So start getting your game ready for that. And, uh, and I think that I was given that, consciousness at about 17 something like that that's a valuable lesson especially then i mean yeah very much yeah i mean especially compared to today where it's even it's even worse i mean realistically it's even more challenging so that's a good lesson to continue to share with students because i mean the amount of competition in general that exists in our field these days is quite crazy it's a, it's so different i mean when people ask me you know how do you break in it's like i have no idea there was no internet when when I started. You know, I you know I had to ask my agent. I said, "Do you take query? How do you do queries now?" And they go, "Oh, it's all over email." And I'm like, "Oh, well, who knew?" You know, because we used to just send envelopes off into the ether with self-addressed stamped envelopes and just wait and wait That's and wait right. and wait and wait and and never hear. You know, more often than not, never hear anything. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's not just not how it's done anymore. And uh, and I can't answer, you know, and, and there are other, while there's more roadblocks and more competition, there's more ways in. I mean, I have a couple of friends who started writing a blog on their own and were picked up by publishers and are now best-selling authors, mm -hmm. you know, and that didn't, that pathway didn't exist when I was coming up. So, you know, so there, there's ways that you can get an audience now that you couldn't, and I, you know, I'm not sure what the, the trailing edge of that is, you know, I'm not sure, you know, that... I'm not sure, you know, I mean, what that does is I think that everybody thinks they can do it because you have TikTok influencers and, and mm -hmm. YouTube influencers and stuff like that. And it's clearly not the same skill set that uh, you and I learned to put words on a page, you know, so, but, but those people are, you're stepping into the street with them as well. It's true. Um, and, and that's before we even open up the can of worms that's, that is what AI is going to be, you know, so, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, I'm sort of equating it at this point, not knowing that much, having used AI chatbots a little bit with uh, when I learned photography, I had a manual 
Nikon that you had to carry around a light meter. Mm -hmm. um, that's and, right. And set, the, and set yeah. the shutter speed and the f-stops and, and figure out what your depth of field and stuff was. And then they, they came out, uh, I think, probably in the late 70s with the automatic exposure cameras that you could, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it was like, my friends who were in, into photography who taught me, they were like, that's cheating, you know, and then you came into autofocus cameras and the people who were really good at that point, I have a friend now who is, uh, who was a National Geographic wildlife photographer. And he said, the first time I was shooting seabirds and I pointed the camera in the air and just fired and I got 15 usable shots. He said, I was sold on, on manual on, or an automatic focus because I never could have focused that quickly, you know, with 30 years of experience. So, uh, I think that we're sort of approaching that with AI where you and I had to learn how to do, uh, how to write coherent sentences and, and structured paragraphs. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that anymore. No. You know, AI will do that for you. So yeah. It's it's, kind of sad. It, I, it is. I, 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 to be quite honest, Andrew, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I'm on the downward trail of my career, you know, where I, I don't have that much more to do. Um, because if I was, you know, 19 and looking up into how to do this, I don't know. I have no idea how I would go. I mean, it would definitely be a different pattern than I took. It have to be. It's a different world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I, I had a weird experience cause I kind of transitioned cause I remember doing the self-addressed envelopes. Like I remember doing the query letters that way. And I also remember yeah. when it transitioned and all of a sudden, looking at writers marketplace and being like emails like I email all these people and stuff. right 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 and so i remember being somewhat of a relief because i remember wasting a lot of money on postage but at the same time it is weird to see the transition as where it's gone from when uh, you started when i started to where it is now and it's i mean on the one hand it, it should work because the people who are still really talented and really produce quality work they should naturally rise to the surface i think but it doesn't kind of seem that works because there's a lot of other factors in play you can just have a really great personality and be really popular on social media and that will sell your writing without having the quality to back it up essentially it's it's a real twisted you know world when it comes to writing these days and yeah and i don't i don't really honestly have a good or bad judgment on it it's different yeah it's just different and and, it, and it's I think for, for for me, I just am tired of having to learn new software all the time. And, you know, it's like what's going on in social media now. It's like, okay, I built up this following on Twitter and I and it, there's a certain amount of uh, cachet that comes with it, you mm -hmm. know, and, and it's not huge, but it's enough that, that I can fill rooms when I do events, you know. Yeah. And then Elon broke Twitter, you know, and it was it, – initially it was Facebook. Initially Facebook was like, well um, – I, you know, all of a sudden my live events, the, the uh, attendance tripled and it was exclusively because of Facebook. Yeah. And then Facebook went, oh, we know you have 125,000 followers, but it'll cost you five grand to actually get a post that all of them will see. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that seems steep to me as opposed to the zero that I paid yesterday. And so I shifted, you know, that to, to Twitter for different reasons. And so the, and I, and I guess, so that's how I feel about it. It's like, well, this is what it is. And, and I know that that's sort of a forbidden term, but it, it really is. You just have to accept it. But I'm, 
I'm just exhausted with like, oh, I have to learn another one. I mean, I'm joining three social networks this week. I, you know? I know. I saw your post on Facebook this morning that said, you're like, you know, you're tired of Facebook. I've now joined Threads. And that's where, all of it, that's where I'm going to be for the time being. Yeah. yeah and it, it's, uh, and, and well, that was a choice. And you know, I host myself, of course, because when Instagram came up, I went, you know, it, it was very much uh, photo oriented. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that means I have to go out of the house and take interesting pictures, which I love to do, but it doesn't get my work done. You know, my, my work done is sitting in a in a cluttered room, you know, putting black marks on a screen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so I went, I'm not going to pursue Instagram because that's, that's a different sort of work. I can't get up in the morning and shoot out an Instagram post and shoot out. And this is when it started, not so much how it evolved. Yeah. And so I didn't develop an Instagram follower. I think I had five followers. And so when they came out with threads three days ago, they were like, oh, your Instagram followers are going to be your base. And I'm like, ooh, all five of them. Thanks. <laughs> um, you know, so, so if threads is the new base, then I'm starting from, from square one. I'm just, I'm just tired of it. It's not, you know, it's really difficult. It's a, it's a first world problem for sure. But uh, it, it is, but it's, it's a problem that everybody has. I mean, it doesn't even just apply to, you know, the literary world. It's, it's everything, but I mean, I teach marketing communication theory at two colleges, and this comes up all the time because it's like, well, there's so many and it's changing all the time. And how are you supposed to keep up with it? And in our world, uh, I've been preaching it for years, like self-publishing and digital publishing and technology and social media and TikTok. Like, it's it's a great time to be an author because anybody can be an author. And it's a real shitty time to be an author right. because anybody can be an author. Like, it's, right. it's this you know, this double-edged sword that we're all kind of stuck with, but it is the reality. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's got pros and cons. It's not as limiting yeah. as what it used to be. There's more opportunity. I mean, in the end I got published because of Twitter. Like it was simply, you know, I was mm -hmm. saying funny shit about a cat I used to have and somebody thought that was amusing and they wanted me to write a blog article. And that blog article got me an inquiry for, for something I'd written and I submitted and I got a publishing contract and the rest is kind of history. So, I mean, I, I, I was one of those weird people that came through like the back door. I didn't go the mm -hmm. regular avenue uh, and my literature agent and all that kind of stuff all came later. So it's, yeah, it's a weird world. <laughs> it's a weird world we live in. Well, no. And, and, and I think it, what you said, the cream rises to the top. Yeah. Um, uh, what comes to mind to me are um, Jenny Lawson and Ali Broch, who are both very successful now best-selling authors and both started doing blogs Um funny blogs. Allie Broch was doing these uh, cartoons that she did on Microsoft Draw. So they're very, you know, sort of primitive. And they, but they were very funny. And then she would write essays that supported them. And most of them, they sort of uh, slouched into her emotional problems her her, her, her mental uh, health, as did Jenny Lawson stuff. And so they, you know, they, but they ended up getting contracts for books. And I think Allie has even been a showrunner on, on, you know, like a Showtime series or something like wow. that. I'm not, I'm not confirmed on that, but, but it was interesting to, to watch them from where they started, where I think I ran across them and there used to be this thing stumble upon, which was like just a, uh, you just click it and it just send you to a random website. And, and it very often was really interesting. And that's, I think I found both of those, those women, uh, doing that, just going, you know, cause I was like, send me stuff that's funny. And it was like, it went to, so, so I don't resent that. I mean, they're both very talented people, mm -hmm. um, and have paid their dues. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, 
it just was, it's not something that I, I, I didn't want to be doing this to promote my work. And now this is what you have to do. Um, yes, unfortunately, you know, that's the reality. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, it, again, you do what you need to do and it's, and it's part of it, but I, I just, I can't give anybody advice. I can go, I can tell you how to write a better paragraph or structure a chapter, but I don't know shit about self-promotion, you know, and, and doing, you know, blog posts and things like that. Most writers don't. It's not the thing we flock to. It's also not why we became writers in the first place, especially anybody who is like, you know, over 35, we didn't become writers so that we would, you know, be right. making public appearances and interviews and blogging and podcasts. And that was never, that was never what we intended. Right, right. And, and, it, and it's, it's definitely a talent. I mean, it's, it's, it's a recognizable talent, obviously a marketable talent. It, it's, yeah. um, it can be less dependent on a old guard sort of infrastructure the way that publishing has always been you know uh you know where you had to we all you know we came up with this idea that you had to get your manuscript over the transom into in front of an editor and then the decision would be made and and everything was how to do that and uh and now you know if you've got a reasonable talent at talking about food uh, you can being funny about food or clothing or you know dogs you, you know you you have a way in you know and, and you just have to get enough eyeballs on you it's it is what it is i don't know how much of it is it's a it's a skill it's it's like uh, gen z everybody knows how to edit film mm -hmm. or what we call film video Everybody knows how to talk to a camera. Everybody knows how to be a presence on camera. You know, um, when I started, when I started publishing, they were like, oh, she's a mess. We need to give her media coaching before we send her out to do interviews. You know, <laughs> they really did that for me. I have a friend who was a best-selling author and they were like, oh, yeah, she's a disaster. She needs coaching, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, and now it's just part of your growing up, you know. Um, I have a friend with two daughters and one is – six and the other is nine i think and they both do like they they tick tock their daily oh i'm getting out of bed now and here i am brushing my teeth you know it's, it's so for their their media presences and their children yeah so, and they're used to it yeah it becomes natural second nature for i think younger generations to do that now so i mean that can be a real pro or con but i've also noticed that the people who do that the younger writers even who have kind of grown up in this area where you know they've been really used to zoom calls and they've been really used to online uh, interactions uh, when they actually get to be in person with someone, there is it's not as easy, though, because this gives a certain level of distance and uh, especially right. on social media anonymity and the ability to project something that isn't really real. So it's, they struggle when all of a sudden they have to be real in front of people that I found that they struggle a little bit more. But it's it's a learned skill. It's like anything else. You can't just fall into it. I mean, it helps to grow up in now, I imagine. But it's still... Uh, it still takes a certain amount of learning and practice to really make. Well, we're talking things. basically about the ages of your students, right? Basically, yeah, um, um, yeah. So, are you know you you're addressing this in a real practical level level every day, aren't you? Yeah. So, I mean, my students are range from uh, it's career they're private career colleges, so they range from you know high school graduates up to like you know fifty. Like, so it, it's a mm -hmm. real like span, and so but you can really see the differentiation when I say here's an assignment, I want you to do this, right. and I want you to present it to the class you can see the generational difference. Right, right. Um, so where I kind of live in a bit of a sweet spot because I was, I remember, you know, pre-internet and I, so mm -hmm. I got to experience all of it going through. 
and the people who are kind of my age, the early 40s, do seem to be able to do it pretty good. But anybody who's over 45 struggles, anybody who is younger um, doesn't struggle with the technology, but they struggle with the ability to articulate and communicate effectively. Right. So it's, you know, different strokes, different generations. I think we're always going to experience this. And it's probably going to be cyclical as, you know, time goes on. It'll, yeah, it'll be interesting. This portion of the episode is brought to you by Streets of Shadow by Rebecca Bischoff. As Bischoff's fourth published novel, this young adult historical murder mystery has garnered numerous five-star reviews. In the dark fall of 1665, 15-year-old Kenner discovers that her sister was murdered. She flees her grandfather's estate for safety, but strangers capture Kenner and trap her in the city of Edinburgh, locked inside the gate at the head of Stuart's Close, a narrow alleyway in the poorest section of the city. Kenna has no money, friends, or shelter, and no way out. She wants nothing more than justice for her murdered sister, but first, she has to survive. One of your raved Rebecca Bischoff is a master of suspense, taking a familiar lady aristocrat turned street vermin theme and spinning it into a fresh murder mystery in Streets of Shadow. The writing is tight, engrossing, and keeps the tension threading through each page. Published by Immortal Works Press, Streets of Shadow is now available in print or ebook through Amazon barnesandnoble.com, and the Immortal Works website. I was at a, a group thing last night, and one of the, the women there was talking about she's a logistics person for a, a Chinese company, and she works out of San Francisco. And she was talking about putting together a, a really insul- uh, specific business proposal for setting goals and, and, uh, you know, a bullet points goals and how to get their, uh, paper for employees. Um, and she admitted, she said, I had AI do the whole thing. And they sent back the first draft and I said, no, make, make it more immediate. And it came back with a draft that was more immediate. And, and oh, she yeah. said that it, it needed to be, it needed practical, uh, paths to achieve these goals it needed more of that so i told it that and it came back with a draft and she said basically i did in 20 minutes which it, it, what would have taken me four hours um to do on my own and and she really she said i don't know if i wrote that paper and i didn't <laughs> you know comment it's just like it sounds like you didn't, didn't. but you achieved what you were going for. And, and when you think of those kind of terms, you think of the times that you've had to actually write business communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see any reason why AI wouldn't do that better than I do. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, it's, I had the same trepidation that everybody did. And, it, and the problem is it happened. Well, we'll do AI and then we'll move on to story stuff <laughs> because I do want to ask you about story structure. Right, right, right. But, yeah. Okay. But the whole AI thing, I mean, it happened so quick. Like this time right. last year, we were all talking about virtual reality. That was the thing because Oculus right. had taken off, Meta had invested money in it, Teams and um, all the different online spaces were, were investing tons of money to develop virtual spaces where we, instead of having, you know, regular classes, we could throw on a headset and we could see our, you know, our, our, um, our classmates and all that kind of stuff in a virtual environment. Right. That seemed to just vanish in October and then November chat GPT gets introduced to the world. And in three months, all of a sudden, it's a massive thing that is causing shock waves. So everybody has a knee jerk reaction, because I mean, when throughout history, have we ever been introduced to artificial intelligence as a concept, 
and it's been presented to us as this is a great thing. It's never a great thing. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger going back in time to kill some a, a kid, or it's 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 always right. AI going insane and taking over the world and firing nukes and becoming self aware. Right, 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 right. So it's understandable that we see that and it has that weird stigma attached to it in the educational fields. Cause I speak to, I speak at teachers conferences a fair amount to teach teachers how to teach writing to their students. And, um, they're all freaking out because all of a sudden, all of a sudden all their students are using AI to write essays, to write stories, to write right. all of these different things. And so it comes down to how you utilize it. I think there's an element of plagiarism because all AI does is take the collected works of what's available on the internet and mashes it and builds it into something that's coherent. So it's not straight plagiarism, it's kind of grayer area of plagiarism. So you can't use it to straight up write. I don't think for business and technical writing, coding, all that kind of stuff, whatever. I don't think that's a big deal, but for creative writing, I think you're, you're, you're pushing some boundaries with it. So, but if you use it as a research tool, if you use it as something to inspire, something to organize your own thoughts and to supplement your own thoughts, I think it works pretty well. I, I played around with it a lot and I'm teaching uh, at a conference next month about AI and how to um, use it more effectively for students, for writing, so that people aren't using it for writing, but they're using it to organize it and you know, put their thoughts into a more cohesive uh, flow, I suppose, because there's, mm -hmm. definitely, there's definitely opportunity there. But people shouldn't be saying, write me a story about blah, blah, blah. I tested that and it, it bloody works, which is terrifying. And you can, like mm -hmm. uh, your friend did, like I, I literally said, write a story about, you know, a monster in the backyard. And it wrote a short story about a monster in the backyard. And I'm saying, okay, now write a scenario where it gets into the house. And it, it added to it and wrote, it gets in the house. And I'm like, okay, now make it a garden gnome. And it turned it into a garden. Like it was a whole, it's impressive, but kind of freaky for writers. I get, I get where that trepidation and that stigma comes from. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm sorry we've gone down the AI rat hole here, right. but it, it's something that, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about the future of what we do, it, it's yeah. it's in your face right now. Mm -hmm. um, somebody asked me last night in the same conversation: Has have have you gone in and said write a story in the style of Christopher Moore? Because there's enough of my stuff out there. There is that, and I said it would terrify me to do that. You haven't tried you it? Know, because there is an, there's enough of my stuff out there. And for one, if it was bad, then I'd be like, I suck. I can't believe it. <laughs> and if you know, if, if I could recognize the elements of my stuff, I'm like, oh, I have no reason to exist now. But um, it, I, I, I'll give you an example of something that I, that I don't feel threatened by AI. Again, I'm on the downhill part of my career. You know, I'm in the last 10, 15% of my career. I'm fine. Um I can coast, uh, but I went. To, I was invited to the Romance Writers of America dinner when it was in San Francisco. Uh, uh, my publisher was involved in that, and so were these two hundred successful romance writers in this room, and they, on average, had written 70, 80 novels. You know, and they were all younger than me. They were all you know thirties and forties. And I, I, one of them told me that she said, well, we, and I go, I can't even imagine, you know, my whole career, I think at that point has been 15 books. Um, and she said, yeah, I've just started. I've only written 73. I said, how do you do that? She, she said, well, they give us a 40 page outline that has all the beats. You know, so like, and then you have to have a sex scene here and this has to here and there's a danger here and all the beats of the story, a 40 page outline. Um, I am relatively sure if you fed a 40-page outline 
into chat GPT and then said, and I want him to be a pirate and her to be a duchess, you'd have yourself a romance novel in about eight minutes mm-hmm. um, that was, I don't know, as good as what's on the shelf, but I bet it's not awful um, or, or recognizably awful enough. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way, because you know, that, that's the other thing that they told me is that romance readers have expectations. And that's why you have to work to these you know, these parameters that they send out. So, so I would be, if I was writing romances, I think I'd be scared, you know, because it's yeah. it's it's just going to be the ethics of the buyers that, that says you know that's all it's going to be um, today. I, Reuters is going to have AI writing news stories. Oh yeah, you know, they announced you? it. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I mean, I do. I still have a couple of freelance clients on the side that I do copywriting for, and honestly, it. AI has cut my freelance writing time in half because it's so much easier to be like, okay, I, you know, I want to write this and I can write half of it and be like, you know, add a little bit more to this or expand on this and it'll expand on it. Like, and it's, I can reassure, I can reassure you and I and established writers, I think. I can't reassure new writers because new writers have the opportunity to establish their own voice and they can establish their own voice as being the voice of whatever AI system they use. But I, right, I did, right. in, in the research portion, I did test it. Like I did, load my work into an AI system and try to get it to analyze my writing. And I write with a very satirical slant um, with, you know, right. kind of sarcastic tones and that kind of thing. So it, it and, and I also write with a bit of an accent and inflections. And so it, it tried and it didn't. So it couldn't write in my tone. Um, right. I have one, I have one class that I teach that's a bunch of graphic designers and I teach them marketing. So they understand what they're getting themselves into and they're all panicking about AI, probably more so than we are, because the amount of AI that creates graphics now is, is ridiculous. Uh, but they're right. saying, like, what, like, why, why do we even exist if you know AI can do this for us? I said, well, you know, what? it's not. You got to consider. I said, you can. I can tell you. Can you create a logo for this company? And you can go ahead and do it. And now I can say to AI, okay, can you go ahead and create a logo in her style? And it'll do it what it thinks is going to be her, the best representation of her style. But what she creates and what AI creates is going to be totally different. Mm-hmm. So, so it's never going to be able to duplicate exactly what individuals can do. We have our own creative sparks and our own tone and voice, and that's a very hard thing to duplicate. So I think if you did ask AI to write like in your style, I don't think it'd be able to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I feel that way now, but I'm, I'm also not going to test it. Oh, um, come on, Chris, test it. I'm, really I'm, looking for, I'm, looking for the, I'm looking for the time when your when you're bookstore has the artisanal section. And it's like actually written by a human being. Actually, you know? exactly. There's going to be like shelves on. just written by AI, yeah. written by the robots. Yeah, it's a little tiny section in the back, you know, by the supernatural romance that says artisanal fiction. Uh, oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? No That's AI. a scary thought. But probably yeah. a really accurate thought, too. I mean, we have like... <laughs> I mean, you go to any kind of bookstore, like big chain bookstore, and they have tables that are, you know, um, TikTok popular books. Like that's if technology can inform yeah. how we read and how we buy, and then right, right. It can also inform how we write. I guess, yeah, it's scary. I, what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> okay, sorry, let's get into this. No, no, you're fine. Yeah, it was, I, I was the one that led down the rattle. You did. You totally took us way off track. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about influences, your influences, and then we'll get into some. I have some specific questions about your your work and your writing craft. But um, you sure. listed like a bunch. I mean, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Douglas Adams, uh, Steinbeck, um, uh, Tom Robbins. I saw was in there. Jules Verne. Right. H.P. Lovecraft and Ian Fleming, which I thought was a nice little 
um, tangent yeah. from everything else you had on your list. But um, how have these guys influenced uh, your writing and your writing style? I mean, because we, you and I have some very similar um, influences, but I'm very curious. On well, I think I think uh, Vonnegut and, and Robbins, it's obvious they were funny and, and whimsical. And, mm -hmm. and I think that my work has elements of that. Uh, Jules Verne was just... Uh, Whatever age you are, grade five, uh, 11, 10, I would, you know, rent like the mysterious island and, and renew it, I, you know, at the library and then renew it and renew it and renew it because it would take me that long. It was a big, thick book. It, and it would take me that long to, to read it. But it was just being, I, I think it opened me up to the world of being engaged in a world, you know, of, of uh, being immersed in a world and, and returning to it, you know, day in and day out or every night, you know. Um, and uh, so, and and of course it was fantastic. And uh, you know, I think about uh, some of the people that influenced me—not Vonnegut and Robbins, but certainly Jules Verne. You know, when I was a little kid, seeing the Mysterious Island uh, or or Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea movies on television, that made me want to read the book. And the James mm -hmm. Bond stuff, Ian Fleming, absolutely started with my father taking me to see James Bond movies when I was five. You know, at the theater, and there were this big, you know giant screens with you know all these you know half naked women swimming and stuff like that and and you know scuba gear and spear guns and all this shit that couldn't be cooler when you're a little kid you know totally so so it, it's strange i i really am a writer of the tv generation and and yeah. uh, that influenced what books eventually would would uh, uh lead me to steinbeck is a big influence on me and and he I, like every kid, I was given uh, of mice and men to read in, in grade ten, you know, and it was horrible. It was just like I don't, you know, the oh, the little guy kills the big guy at the end. Oh, that's a great story of friendship. I hate this, and I was like, I'm never reading this guy again. And then the Nick Nolte, Deborah Winger movie of Cannery Row came out, and I was like, oh, I might read this book. This is kind of because it has John Huston as this. The mm -hmm. voice of Steinbeck reading in the background, and I'm like, "This is pretty cool." Um, and so I, I, Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday went on to be my two favorite books. You know, and they're the books that that movie is taken from. But, yeah. but what I learned from the Steinbeck was he could write about really flawed people with great affection and great forgiveness. And early on, when I was writing fiction, my stuff would be satirical, but it'd be really biting. And really harsh, even on the characters. And from Steinbeck, I learned, don't no, you forgive these people. We're all flawed. That's what we have in common as hum, as human beings. And I think that allowed the reader a, a way into my books too. You know, it's like oh, I can come along, and we'll both have fun here, rather than me poking fun at people. Um, mm -hmm. And and so so you know that that's where those influences. Uh, Ian Fleming, I think, was just the uh, the details that you get when you read the James Bond books, you know, the Rolex watches and the Bentleys and the, the certain kinds of suits and shoes and shirts, because, you know, James Bond says, uh, I think in Moonraker, he doesn't know if he's going to live till tomorrow. So everything he has, he wants to be the best, you know, he wants to experience that. And so you sort of, you, you get all these little details that, that Fleming wrote into those books that, that you know, seem really cool when you're a kid, you know, and, and but also the idea of, uh, salient detail rather than you know heaped piles of detail you know yeah. vivid detail that made you that that you remembered that you know that put you in that place and i think that was what i got out of reading those those spy novels he had a good balance of it too fleming always wrote with a, 
I mean, he it probably helped that he'd been to most of these locations in his life, um, either with the army or you know in his after what he retired. Right. But, but so his descriptions are always. I don't know, they're always to the point and they're always enough to ground you in the location. Whereas I always found that like, uh, Anne Rice, beautiful narrative prose, descriptive of the yin yang, but her descriptions were so detailed and pages and pages of New Orleans mansions and such, which I mean, I love and I love, I love reading her work, but I always thought, uh, thought that um, Fleming always had like a really nice grounded way of putting you in the locations. And I think it was partially because he, he'd been there as well. I think that really helped. Um, but, well, uh, and he and he wrote, you know, 175 page books, and Anne Rice sure. wrote 600 page books. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, she she could. Just I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying. Well, no, they could, she could just yeah. made her description shorter, and then it would have been a you know 200 page book instead of a 600 page book. But that's but an interesting. That, should be Anne Rice. It's interesting you bring that up because I I can't remember. I think it was the. Mem knocked the devil was the Anne Rice. I was a huge Anne Rice fan, you know, from the vampire books. And then Mem knocked the devil came out, and I remember sending that sailing across the room because of the the descriptions of the draperies. It was like Anne, enough, enough, you know. It, it, it she and I think at the time she was remodeling a a mansion in the Garden District in, in New Orleans, and so. Her, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of fabrics and stuff like that that was had no place whatsoever in that story, and and I was just like done, done, boom. My wife still talks about you know this big giant novel sailing across the bedroom and smashing into the wall, um, but so um, and and at the same time, and and this is something that I don't I don't think a lot of writers have, but I I read that she didn't accept editing anymore. She wouldn't let anybody, um, you know, cut her stuff. And so, you know, that that's a success hole, I guess you can fall in. By, by contrast, I, my, my first agent had been an editor, um, I think at Doubleday, and he edited James Clavel. And James Clavel wrote Shogun and Noble House and these big 800-page novels. And, and, uh, and I, I asked him, you know, I, and I, and Clavel was also somebody who made, who immersed you into a world. I remember reading uh, Shogun when I first moved to California. I didn't know anybody, and I just was like, "Well, I'm going to be in medieval Japan then." And I, I asked my agent, I "said How did he do that?" And he said, "He wrote everything." And he said, "I have 1,600 pages in my garage that I cut out of Noble House," Ooh. and I went. And that's like an eleven hundred page novel, Andrew. And it and my and my agent had cut sixteen hundred pages from it. And it was like, well, that's one way to do it is just write everything, you know. And and so, uh, I, I think that that may have been the the whole that Anne Rice, you know, she was successful. She was a good writer, mm-hmm. and you know, she just. Uh, What's the term somebody online used? And I thought it was hilarious. It was like, she was high on the smell of her own farts. <laughs> it's probably true. I mean, may she rest in peace. But yeah, that's. Uh... I'm going to get death threats for that. You are. I, just to be clear, I don't about... endorse anything that Chris is saying about Unrise. I still admire. Anyways. You cannot talk about the queen of the night that you way. You cannot. Uh, she's. Um... It's so funny you say that. Memnock the Devil is where she lost me. I read that, I, I finished mm-hmm. that novel, but then I was like, I did not enjoy reading this. And I loved everything to that point. I even went through like Mayfair Witches, which is a freaking tomb of a book. But 
Men Like the Devil like broke me. I was like, oh, and I, I actually didn't read her for years after that until I think right. I picked up Prince Lestat or something like that. Right. But, yeah, it was. It was that over descriptive piece that was just like, oh, this is not appealing to read anymore. Right. Well, and when when you mentioned the draperies, uh, you know, un unprompted, I'm like, okay, I know what he's talking about exactly because I hit that same wall and was like yes. cushioned by brocade draperies. Um, yeah, it was so. God, it was so entrenched in, yeah, description. So I do always refer students to her, like writing students to her with, the, you want to learn how to write descriptive? Like, she's really good. You just got to learn that and then dial it back like 80%. <laughs> and then you've probably got a really good solid way to describe location. Well, you know, I in in the uh, in the forward to, uh, or it's an epigraph to, to my book, Lamb, I say all books represent perfection, either by what they are or what they are not. And a lot of times, if you can identify in advance that this is a bad book, you know, um, you can learn from that. You can go, you can read Men Like the Devil and you go, I am definitely cutting back on my scenes that describe draperies. Um, I remember when I was reading my, writing my first book, I had a, a copy of Judith Krantz's Princess Daisy on my nightstand. And it's like a three inch thick novel. And every time I, I would have that wave of, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, still don't um you know I, i'm a loser i'm gonna die you know homeless and alone in a cardboard box um and i would just read a few paragraphs of of judith Krantz, you know and it would say on the, it said on the cover 160 million books in print right and i would read like a page of judith Krantz, and i'd go okay i can do this shit i can absolutely do this and it was it was just that negative example of saying okay I can do this or, you know, I learned by not doing what I find doesn't work for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so you can, you know, as a teacher, you know, you can, you can teach that too. It's just like, if you find something you don't like in a book, don't do that and, you know, make a note. <laughs> don't do that in your own work, you know? Well, you learn from the good experiences and the bad experiences. I mean, they both influence how you, you know, produce. Right. Or, bad, bad writing can really teach oh, yeah. you a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's, I have a limitation for it. You know, like I, I, I don't think I could be a teacher full time and, and have to grade 30, you know, short story attempts. I would just be like, I can't, I can't do it, you know. But I mean, I tutored uh, composition in, in school in Ohio State. And, you know, it was basic five paragraph composition. Mm -hmm. And so it's very mathematical and easy to teach. And, and, um, and you had to be, you know, they asked me to do it. I didn't like volunteer. They were like, well, you, we've got some really illiterate people. Will you help them? And, um, and that was okay. That was different because it was mathematical, but you can't teach fiction that way. You know, I, no. I, I, I make an attempt really, but, but, uh, you know, in structure, you know, in structure of, of suspense, but, uh, I, I can't, I couldn't read the bad stuff over and over and over and over again. It's not anybody's fault. We all write shit. You know, yeah. especially when we're starting out. I mean, it's it's just that, you know, if you're still trying to produce your own stuff and have it not be awful, you don't want to keep lowering the bar, you know. It's like Scooter in Comp 101 can't even write a complete sentence. I'm rocking this thing, you know, <laughs> crushing this short story. Basically a genius over here, just killing it. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. And that's the end of the first part of the conversation with Christopher Moore. Make sure you tune in next Tuesday for the second part. 
There's going to be an episode of Story Centric every single Tuesday, so please make sure you subscribe. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just head over to andrewbuckleyauthor.com or find me on Instagram, and you can find the advertising rates and my contact information there. Again, thank you so much for listening, guys. We will see you next Tuesday. Bye.